Hello, and welcome to Amateur Story Hour. In this episode, I have for you the first two chapters of the book Around the World in 80 Days by Jules Verne. Around the World in 80 Days by Jules Verne. Chapter 1 In which Phileas Fogg and Passeparau accept each other, the one as master, the other as servant. Mr. Phileas Fogg lived in 1872 at number 7, Savile Row, Burlington Gardens, the house in which Sheridan died in 1814. He was one of the most prominent members of the London Reform Club, though he never did anything to attract attention, an enigmatic character about whom little is known except that he was a polished man of the world. People said that he resembled a Byron, at least that his head was Byronic, but he was a bearded, tranquil Byron, who might live on a thousand years without growing old. An Englishman. Indeed, it was more doubtful whether Phileas Fogg was a Londoner. He was never seen on change, nor at the bank, nor in the counting-rooms of the city. No ships of which he was the owner ever came into the London docks. He had no public employment. He had never been entered at any of the inns of court, either at the Temple, or Lincoln's Inn, or Gray's Inn, nor had his voice ever resounded in the court of Chancery, or in the Exchequer, or the Queen's Bench, or ecclesiastical courts. He certainly was not a manufacturer, nor was he a merchant or a gentleman farmer. His name was unfamiliar to the scientific and learned societies, and he never was known to take part in the deliberations of the Royal Institution or the London Institution, the Artisans' Association or the Institution of Arts and Sciences. He belonged, in fact, to none of the numerous societies which swarm in the English capital, from the Harmonica Society to that of the Entomologists, founded mainly for the purpose of abolishing pernicious insects. Phileas Fogg was a member of the Reform, and that was all. The way in which he got admission to this exclusive club was simple enough. He was recommended by the Baring Brothers, with whom he had an open credit. His checks were regularly paid on sight from his account, which was always flush. Was Phileas Fogg rich? Undoubtedly. But those who knew him best could not imagine how he had made his fortune, and Mr. Fogg was the last person to whom to apply for the information. He was not lavish, nor, on the contrary, stingy, for whenever he knew that money was needed for a noble, useful, or benevolent purpose, he supplied it quietly, and sometimes anonymously. He was, in short, the least communicative of men. He talked very little, and seemed all the more mysterious for his taciturn manner. His daily habits were quite open to observation. His daily habits were quite open to observation. But whatever he did was so precisely what he had always done before, that the wits of the curious were fairly puzzled. Had he travelled? 
it was likely, for no one seemed to be so familiar with the world. There was no spot so secluded that he did not have an intimate acquaintance with it. He often corrected, with a few clear words, the thousand conjectures advanced by members of the club as to lost and unheard of travelers. He would point out the true probabilities, seem as if gifted with a sort of. Had he traveled, it was likely, for no one seemed to be so familiar with the world. There was no spot so secluded that he did not have an intimate acquaintance with it. He often corrected, with a few clear words, the thousand conjectures advanced by members of the club as to lost and unheard of travelers. He would point out the true probabilities, seem as if gifted with a sort of second sight. So often did events justify his predictions. He must have traveled everywhere, at least in the spirit. In any case, it was certain that Phileas Fogg had not absented himself from London for many years. Those who had the honor of a closer acquaintance with him than the rest declared that nobody could claim to have ever seen him anywhere else. His sole pastimes were reading the papers and playing whist. He often won at this game, which, as a silent one, harmonized with his nature. But his winnings never went to his purse, but were reserved as a fund for his charities. Mr. Fogg played not to win, but for the sake of playing. The game was, in his eyes, a contest, a struggle with a difficulty, yet emotionless, unwearying struggle, congenial to his tastes. Here we go, here we go, here we go, now, now. Hey, Phileas Fogg was not known to have either wife or children, which happens to the most honest people, nor relatives or near friends, which is certainly more unusual. He lived alone in his house in Savile Row, whither none penetrated. A single servant sufficed to serve him. He had lunch and dinner at the club, at hours mathematically fixed, in the same room, at the same table, never taking his meals with other members, much less bringing a guest with him, and went home at exactly midnight, only to retire at once to bed. He never used the cozy rooms which the reform provides for its members. He spent ten hours out of the twenty-four in Savile Row, either sleeping or preparing himself to go out. When he chose to take a walk, it was with a regular step in the entrance hall, with its mosaic flooring, or in the circular gallery with its dome supported by twenty red porphyry ionic columns and illumined by blue painted windows. When he breakfasted or dined, all the resources of the club, its kitchens and pantries, its buttery and dairy, provided his table with their most succulent foods. The serious waiters, in dress coats and shoes with swanskin soles, serving to him in special porcelain, and on the finest linen, club decanters of a lost mould, contained his sherry, his port, and his cinnamon-spiced claret, while his beverages were refreshingly cooled with ice brought at great cost from the American lakes. If to live in this style is to be eccentric, it must be confessed that there is something good in eccentricity. The mansion in Savile Row, though not sumptuous, was exceedingly comfortable. The habits of its occupant were such as to demand but little from the sole servant, 
but phileas fogg required him to be almost superhumanly prompt and regular on this very second of october he had dismissed james forster because that luckless youth had brought him shaving water at eighty-four degrees fahrenheit instead of eighty-six and he was awaiting his successor who was due at the house between eleven and half-past phileas fogg was seated squarely in his armchair his feet close together like those of a grenadier on parade his hands resting on his knees his body straight his head erect he was steadily watching an elaborate clock which indicated the hours the minutes the seconds the days the months and the years at exactly half past eleven mr fogg would according to his daily habit leave savile row and go to the reform a rap at this moment sounded on the door of the drawing-room where phileas fogg was seated and james forster the dismissed servant appeared the new servant said he a young man of thirty advanced and bowed you are a frenchman i believe asked phileas fogg and your name is john jean if monsieur pleases replied the newcomer jean passepartout a nickname which has stuck with me because i have a natural aptness for going out of one business and into another i believe i'm honest monsieur but to be outspoken i've had several trades i've been an itinerant singer a circus rider when i used to vault like leotard and dance on a rope like blondin then i got to be a professor of gymnastics so as to make better use of my talents and then i was a sergeant fireman in paris and i even have it in my resume some remarkable fires but i left france five years ago and wishing to taste the sweets of domestic life took service as a valet here in england but i left france five years ago and wishing to taste the sweets of domestic life took service as a valet here in england finding myself out of place and hearing that monsieur phileas fogg was the most exact and settled gentleman in the united kingdom i have come to monsieur in the hope of living with him a tranquil life and forgetting even the name of passepartout passepartout suits me answered mr fogg you come well recommended to me you know my conditions yes monsieur good what time is it twenty-two minutes after eleven returned passepartout drawing an enormous silver watch from the depths of his pocket you are slow said mr fogg pardon me monsieur but that's impossible you are four minutes slow no matter it's enough to mention the error now from this moment twenty-nine minutes after eleven a m this wednesday october second you are in my service phileas fogg got up took his hat in his left hand put it on his head with an automatic motion and went off without a word Passepartout heard the street door shut once. It was his new master going out. He heard it shut again. It was his predecessor, James Forster, departing in his turn. Passepartout remained alone in the house in Savile Row. Chapter 2 In which Passepartout is convinced that he has at last found his ideal. To be sure, muttered Passepartout, somewhat flurried. I've seen people at Madame Tussauds as lively as my new master. Madame Tussauds' people, let it be said, 
are of wax and are much visited in London. Speech is all that is wanting to make them human. During his brief interview with Mr. Fogg, Passepartout had been carefully observing him. He appeared to be a man about forty years of age, with fine, handsome features, and a tall, well-shaped figure. His hair and whiskers were light, his forehead compact and unwrinkled, his face rather pale, his teeth magnificent. His countenance possessed in the highest degree what physiognomists call repose in action, a quality of those who act rather than talk. Calm and phlegmatic, with a clear eye, Mr. Fogg seemed a perfect type of that English composure which Angelica Kaufman has so skillfully represented on canvas. Seen in the various phases of his daily life, he gave the idea of being perfectly well-balanced, as exactly regulated as a Leroy chronometer. Phileas Fogg was, indeed, exactitude personified, and this was betrayed even in the expression of his very hands and feet. For in men, as well as animals, the limbs themselves are expressive of the passions. He was so exact that he was never in a hurry, was always ready, and was economical in both his steps and his motions. He never took one step too many, and always went to his destination by the shortest way. He made no superfluous gestures, and was never seen to be moved or agitated. He was the most deliberate person in the world, yet always arrived on time. He lived alone, and so to speak, outside of every social relation, as he knew that in this world there must be friction, and since friction slows things down, he never rubbed against anybody. As for Jean, also known as Passepartout, he was a true Parisian of Paris. For the five years he had lived in England, taking service as a valet, he had in vain searched for a master after his own heart. Passepartout was by no means one of those pert dunces depicted by Moliere. With a bold gaze and a nose held high in the air, he was an honest fellow, with a pleasant face, lips a trifle protruding, soft-mannered and helpful, and with a good round head, such as one likes to see on the shoulders of a friend. His eyes were blue, his complexion robust, his face plump enough so that he could see his own cheeks, his body muscular, and his physical powers fully developed by the exercises of his younger days. His brown hair was somewhat tumbled, for while the ancient sculptors are said to have known eighteen methods of arranging Minerva's tresses, Passepartout was familiar with but one of fixing his own. Three strokes of a large tooth comb was enough to complete his morning rituals. It would be rash to predict how Passepartout's lively nature would agree with Mr. Fogg. Would the new servant turn out as absolutely methodical as his master required? Experience alone could solve the question. Passepartout had been a sort of wanderer in his early years, and now yearned for peace. So far he had failed to find it, though he had already served in ten English houses. But he could not take root in any of these, and with chagrin he found his masters invariably whimsical and irregular, constantly running about the country or on the lookout for adventure. His last master, young Lord Longferry, member of Parliament, after spending his nights in the Haymarket taverns, was too often brought home in the morning on policemen's shoulders. Passepartout, eager to be able to respect the gentleman whom he served, ventured a mild remonstrance on such conduct, which on being ill-received, he took his leave. Hearing that Mr. Phileas Fogg was looking for a servant, and that his life was one of unbroken regularity, 
that he neither traveled nor strayed from home overnight, he felt sure that this would be the place he was after. He presented himself and was accepted, as has been seen. At half-past eleven, then, Passepartout found himself alone in the house in Savile Row. He began its inspection without delay, looking it over from cellar to attic. So clean, well-arranged, and solemn a mansion pleased him. It seemed to him like a snail's shell lighted and warmed by gas, which sufficed for both these purposes. When Passepartout reached the second story, he recognized at once the room which he was to inhabit, and he was well pleased with it. Electric bells and speaking-tubes afforded communications with the lower stories. On the mantel stood an electric clock, precisely like that in Mr. Fogg's bedchamber, both beating the same second at the same instant. "'That's good. That'll do,' said Passepartout to himself. He suddenly observed, hung over the clock, a card which upon inspection proved to be a program of the daily routine of the house. It included, from eight in the morning, exactly at which hour Phileas Fogg rose till half-past eleven when he left the house for the Reform Club. All the details of service, the tea and toast at twenty-three minutes past eight, the shaving water at thirty-seven minutes past nine, and the hair-combing at twenty minutes before ten. Everything was regulated and foreseen that was to be done from half-past eleven a.m. till midnight, the hour at which the methodical gentleman retired. Mr. Fogg's wardrobe was amply supplied, and in the best taste. Each pair of trousers, coat, and vest bore a number, indicating the time of year and season at which they were to in turn be laid out for wearing, and the same system was applied to the master's shoes. In short, the house in Savile Row, which must have been a very temple of disorder and unrest under the illustrious but dissipated Sheridan, was coziness, comfort, and method idealized. There was no study, nor were there books, which would have been quite useless to Mr. Fogg, for at the Reform two libraries, one of general literature and the other of law and politics, were at his service. A moderate-sized safe stood in his bedroom, constructed so as to defy fire as well as burglars. Passepartout found neither arms nor hunting weapons anywhere. Everything betrayed the most tranquil and peaceful habits. Having scrutinized the house from top to bottom, he rubbed his hands. A broad smile overspread his features, and he said joyfully, "'This is just what I wanted. Ah, we shall get on together, Mr. Fogg and I. What a domestic and regular gentleman! A real machine! Well, I don't mind serving a machine.'" Well, I hope you enjoyed the first two chapters, and then in the coming chapters we'll find out how working for Phileas Fogg lives up to Mr. Passepartout's expectations. Also looking to look forward to, uh, I have a new microphone on the way, so hopefully the sound quality will go up in the coming episodes. Anyway, uh, it's been a pleasure recording for you, and I hope you enjoyed listening. Until next time, bye-bye.